Well, once again, a warm welcome to all of you who are gathered here this evening. As you uh, might have picked up, we've started a new series in Colossians. And uh, last week, we welcomed Phoebe, and we heard a little bit from her about uh, what the town of Colossae was, all, was like, and what the neighborhood was like, and what this little new community of believers, how it was beginning to form. And we're going to carry on reading the next section of Paul's letter together. Well, we heard it read by Eva Elizabeth a few minutes ago. And we're going to step in just as Paul is getting kind of lyrical. That section which you heard is actually a poem. And hymns and poems do things to our imaginations. To be honest, I've always rather struggled with poetry. I'm, very, I'm kind of a linear kind of person. And the way that poems kind of pull ideas and metaphors and concepts from all sorts of places and weave them together can sometimes do my head in a little bit. I, I, you know, I like a mathematical proof where you can just go through logically. But, but poetry operates always on different levels and capturing our minds with echoes of thoughts and beauty. And so Paul had started his letter to them, beginning to just set out who he was, and and then he starts thanking God for various things. I feel like you can almost capture his enthusiasm as he goes through those first few verses. As he's giving thanks, he begins to remember who it is that he's giving thanks to. And then he winds out with this outpouring of gospel of the good news about Jesus. Now, what I want you to do, in front of you, uh, there's a piece of folded paper. Well, there's three in a pew, and if there's more than three of you in a pew, stick your hand up, and the usher will give you you one. Don't open it. Don't open it. I just want you to look at the front. So you're all going to just hold it like this. But you will want um, a pen or a pencil, or if you're a Weber, you need a whole raft of colors, um, because I'm going to ask you to do a few things with this piece of paper. And the first thing I want you to do is to begin to think about Jesus. And if you were saying thank you to Jesus, I want you to begin to jot down on here just some ideas about Jesus, anything you might that comes to mind. And, you know, we're, we're fresh o- 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 over Christmas, so maybe Jesus in the manger or Jesus as a baby or, or maybe you're already anticipating Easter, so maybe Jesus on the cross. What are some of the images which come to mind for you about Jesus? If you are a regular in atrium, I hope that the first thing you wrote down was Jesus is the good shepherd, because that is really key atrium knowledge just there. And then as you write down a few ideas, perhaps you want to put down some adjectives, some adverbs, some metaphors, some pictures, some images. Now, if you're not very good with words, you can just sketch at this point, or you can begin to write a a song. I don't mind what you do, but, but just begin to think about who it is that I'm talking about and who Paul is talking about. Because Paul is sitting in prison, and he's writing to this new little church, and he's writing because he knows that their very survival is predicated on their ability to get hold of who Jesus is, because they are living in a culture which is deeply, deeply saturated with messages about Caesar. Caesar, Caesar, everywhere they went, they would have seen pictures of Caesar. All their very livelihood was set, said to be res- coming from Caesar. If they do well, it's because Caesar's great. If, if things flourish, it's because Caesar's great. The message of their culture was that Caesar was ruling, and therefore all was well. Kind of reminiscent of Big Brother as well in 1984, the sense that you're being watched at all times by Caesar. 
And Jesus wants these young Christians' minds to be refocused. He knows that they need to get a better grasp of who Jesus is because that is how the church is going to survive. And it's worth remembering that for the people in in Colossae, Jesus, it's not that long since he died. He's still very human to them. His death would have only been several decades before, and so there's living memory about Jesus the man. And so Paul wants to break through all of that and enlarge their vision of who Jesus is. And so Paul offers in this hymn four aspects of who Jesus is. He talks about Jesus being fully God, the image of God. He talks about Jesus being creator and then crucified, risen, and the redeemer. And if you want to, you may now open up um, your piece of paper, and in it is a translation of this poem, which is, I'm using the Kingdom New Testament at the moment as a different, slightly different translation, which I'm really enjoying. It's one by N.T. Wright, and so this is his translation of the Colossians 1 Jesus poem, and so you might want to just follow along with it there. So first of all, Jesus as the image of God. In verse 15, he is the image of God, the invisible one, the firstborn of all creation. And later on in verse 19, for in him all the fullness was glad to dwell. This is really the first Christological exposition. And this is Paul laying down the beginnings of the theology of Christ that for many of us, We've just kind of absorbed with the water we've drunk for as many years as we've been in churches. But you've got to kind of get yourself back into that first century mentality of how mind-blowing this was. All of God in Jesus. All of God in Jesus. Now for Jesus, of course, uh, his earthly sex was a necessity to being human At the end of the day, he had to be physically one thing or the other because the critical point for Jesus was that beneath his male sex, he was completely and fully human. It was his chromosomal, organ-filled body which exemplified that he was on earth and not some kind of something else, not kind of some kind of demigod or or an angel or partially human. He was a blood-bearing person within whom all the fullness of God was shown. And sometimes our view of Jesus is just too small, and Paul wants to expand our minds to see Christ more fully. Jesus is not partly God, but he has every aspect of God, the totality of the Godhead within himself. As the beginning of the sort of theology of the Trinity was beginning to be formed, and, and as the ways we sometimes think of the Trinity, it's, it's tempting to think of it as kind of like a pie with three pieces. And, and this is a, something I was reading this week, and they were saying, you know, you could almost imagine slicing up the pie, and you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's so hard for us to get our head around this fact that Jesus was fully God. And as Jesus himself said to Philip, And you can read this in John's Gospel, chapter 14. He said to you, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus himself knew that he represented the Father on earth. And so Jesus is fully God, but he is also the creator. In verse 16, for in him all things were created in the heavens and here on the earth. Things we can see and things we cannot. Thrones. 
and lordships and rulers and powers, all things were created both through him and for him. In him, all things were created. And even for these early Christians, whether or not they came from a Jewish background, they would have probably heard the creation narratives. And they'd begun to think about what it meant that, that people were created, that light came out of darkness. And here Paul's saying to them, Jesus did that. Jesus separated the light from the dark. Jesus created people, all humanity, male and female, made in the image of God. This image that becomes broken, needing the perfect image to come in its fullness. Jesus who created every living creature, all flora and fauna. And more than that, all things visible and invisible. Things we can see and things we cannot see. Every layer of every power dynamic, thrones, lordships, rulers, powers. Again, Paul is pushing back against this motif that, that Caesar holds all the power. Oh no, he says, Caesar doesn't hold all the power. Jesus, Jesus holds all the power. The little Roman world, how it pales into insignificance before Jesus, the creator. In verse 17, he is ahead prior to all else, and in him all things hold together. Things are not holding together in the Roman government, Paul is saying, but in Jesus. Caesar's not in charge. Jesus is in charge. He's ahead. He's before. He holds all things. There is nothing that comes before him. All things hold together because of the wisdom of God, not because necessarily of the laws of nature. We see those, but Jesus undergirds all of that. So Jesus is the image of God, he's the creator, and Jesus is Lord. In verse 18, he goes on, and he himself is supreme, the head over the body, the church. He is the start of it all, firstborn from realms of the dead, so in all things he might be the chief, for in him all the fullness was glad to dwell. Jesus is the head, the head of all things, the chief, the firstborn, in him is all the, f the fullness Head, head of all the galaxies. What would you put him as head of? Head of all the superpowers. I don't know, all the things that could be. But if you've got a head, then you have to have a body. And I wonder what you would think of as the body if you hadn't ever come up to the, with this concept before. But here you've got the head. And you can almost hear the gasp when, the, when Paul says, and the church is his body. The church, that's you guys, the people in the pews, you are the ones who are going to walk and talk and, and live out the instructions from the head. You are going to be the ones who embody everything which Christ is about. Suddenly the church is pushed from humble obscurity into prime position. If you passed anyone on the street in Colossae in first century Turkey and said, you know, <laughs> Where is God manifest? They're not going to say the church. It's not going to be the first thing that springs to their mind. This new, humble, patchwork church made up of all the misfits of society, of men and women and slaves who gather to worship. Who gather to worship divinely, eternally connected, as are we, to all generations of believers. So Paul is calling them to see their relevance in this Jesus story. Jesus is the preeminent Lord over all, but they had a vital role to play in the way that this is all going to work out. They're the ones who literally walk and talk out God's purposes on earth. What a calling. 
And then Jesus is the one in whom all things are reconciled and redeemed. He is the firstborn from the realms of the dead. Unlike Lazarus rising from the dead who had to rise again, Jesus rose and never had to die again. He is the first who rises to everlasting life. And through him to reconcile all to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, yes, things on the earth and also the things in the heavens. This grand finale of the poem draws us to this pinnacle, this apex. What would you have thought of making as the apex of your poem? Probably not the cross. This raw tool which turns out to be so pivotal for the narrative of God's love. The cross where all our sin, all the evil of the world was broken and beaten. The cross which bore Jesus' blood, red, raw, flowing blood, the violence of the death extraordinarily transforming into a message of peace. Once again, we see Jesus died for all, to reconcile all men and women. Jesus preceding Adam and Eve and containing all of God. He saves all equally, slave and free, all mankind. And as I was thinking about this image, I just love the fact that blood is just blood. It's not male blood or female blood or anything blood. It's just blood. It was the blood of Jesus on the cross that we can look to as the sacrifice, the end of slavery, as Phoebe understood it last week. So Jesus, fully God, creator, crucified, risen, and reconciler. And this resurrection of Christ is the way which enables us all then to step into the kingdom of light, leaving the kingdom of darkness behind. He is the means by which we are rescued and redeemed and restored. And so as we imagine Paul helping this young church get to grips with this early Christology, the theology of Christ is, I wonder where your poems are going to go. What is it that's going to spark your imagination or where are your imaginations constricted even though we've had 2,000 years of books written about Christ, where does our worldview push back? Where do you find yourself kind of slightly resisting that idea of Christ as the one, Christ as the power, Christ to whom all allegiance is due? If we see Jesus as fully God, what difference does that make to how you pray, how you behave? It kind of pushes back a little bit about Jesus being too buddy-buddy because God is just huge. And so how is it that we address Jesus when we pray? If we see Jesus as creator, how does that challenge us in the ways that we live? What are the things that we want to respond to in creation differently? How are we going to view the things that we pay attention to on this earth? It could be to do with creation care. And last week, I, I just saw something in passing about a phrase, every Ziploc bag you've ever used is still somewhere in the world. And it's kind of haunted me all week. It's just like a terrible thought. And every toothpaste, toothbrush you've ever used. I mean, these thoughts, I think they need to capture our imagination because we do need to reconcile our, our existence on this earth with the fact that Jesus is the creator of the earth. And so we try, we try to pay attention to the ways that we use it, but also to the ways that we delight in it. Kim is one of the people I know who delights most clearly in creation. And if you don't follow her on Facebook, you should, because she pays attention to the details of every beautiful thing around her. 
And so I urge you, pay attention to the beauty around you and give thanks for the way that Jesus created. Take time. Take time. And pay attention to the fact that Jesus is Redeemer. That there is an end to darkness. That there is a way from darkness to light. And it comes through this costly, costly shedding of blood on the cross that comes as he suffocates to death. But even in that violence, you see the peace that comes as its result. And peace is never easily won. We have to fight for peace. Even simple things like having a Sabbath can be so heavily contested. Where are you going to be fighting for peace in your own life or in the lives of people around you as you think about Jesus as Redeemer? And where this week, perhaps, as you think about your poem, will you think about where Jesus is Lord? It must have been tough for the church in Colossae to have been under the rule of Caesar. But then again, if you look around the world today, you see every place, it's kind of tough. There are leaders all around this world who make things hard for the people in those countries. Power, power can be such a powerful way of disturbing the peace. And so, for example, even in this city, we need to make sure that we are striving for peace in the days and weeks ahead. As the body of Christ in Metro DC, we have a responsibility to be praying with vigor for justice, for integrity, to do so with humility, for power to be used, not abused. It doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but I don't care which way you vote. But I do care that we should all be people of integrity, that we should be people of humility, that we should pray daily for all our leaders that we should not be afraid to challenge Caesar in our midst with the truth that God is the ultimate God and that his message is one of love and reconciliation. And so this week, I'm going to suggest you take away your piece of paper. I'm going to suggest that you take some time to listen and think about who Christ is. I want you to take those first words that you began to write down, and I want to think, you to think, how will you respond? Could you write a Christ poem this week? You can weave in your own hopes and dreams and desires, but focus on the one to, on whom we give thanks. Allow your imagination to soar. I counted up. Paul's poem is about 130 words. Why not restrict yourself to that and see, could you do that as a maximum? And if you're brave, uh, why not send it to me once you've written it? I'd love to write a blog with some of our Christ poems in it. That'll challenge me as well to finish mine. And if you'd rather draw a picture, do that. Some sort of response, some sort of response which says, who are you, Christ? And how am I following you in this world today, in this place? How are you going to respond to God, who is all of God, who is creator, redeemer, and Lord. I'm going to have a few minutes now just to get started on that as you begin to think about who Jesus is. Heavenly Father, precious Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you, Trinity God, that you are all things and in all places through all times. We thank you that Jesus was human, that we can identify with him, we thank you that he is also creator. 
that he made us. We thank you that he is our redeemer and that he restores all things. Help us to get a bigger vision, a bigger idea of who Jesus is. Amen.